I want to thank you for listening today. If you have not subscribed to our podcast, please do so and feel free to rate and review us as well. If you live nearby and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come visit us here at Fellowship Bible Church in Jacksonville, Texas. You can connect with us by calling or texting CONNECT to 903-586-6520. If you would like to support the ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, we would greatly appreciate that as well. To give one time or on a regular basis, you can text GIVE to 903 903- 586-6520. If you live a ways away, we hope you would find a good Bible-believing and preaching church in your area to join and serve in and support. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you have a great week. Well, this morning is going to be very unique. A unique sermon. You're like, what is that? What is that going to look like? You're curious now. Now we are, we are finishing out our, our special series that we've been doing on discipleship. If you are visiting for the first time today or just this month, what we normally do is we take a book of the Bible and we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, till we're finished with that book and then we move on to another book and we go back and forth from the Old and New Testament. We're going to pick that up again next week when we start the book of Colossians. So we'll be starting Colossians next week. But for this month, the month of January, we have taken a special look at, at discipleship. Now, technically, we, we, we focus on discipleship each and every Sunday, but this month we've really zeroed in on what discipleship is, who disciples are, what discipleship costs, and what it looks like. Last week, we focused in on, on what discipleship looks like in the church, and this morning, we are going to discuss what it should look like in the home. This message is going to have a bit of a different feel this morning. This is going to feel at times a, a bit like you're in a classroom as I, I give you some, some statistics. And then we'll be looking at biblical passages in favor of and historical examples of home discipleship and what it looks like for you practically. So we're going to look at it historically, biblically, and pragmatically home discipleship. You will see today, if you have not already, that this is something very near and dear to my heart. This morning we are going to focus on something I believe is vital to our families, to our church family, to our community, and to the world. We'll be answering several questions. When it comes to home discipleship, one, what is it? Two, why is it important? Three, who does it? Four, when do you do it? And five, how do you do it? Okay, so let's begin with the what. What it is. What is home discipleship? Here is a good definition for you up on the screen. Look at this definition. Home discipleship is the regular use of scripture, song, and prayer by a family unit led by the family shepherd. 
It is a regular time of Bible study in the home between husband and wife. That's a family. Or parents and children. Also, for those of you singles in here, it's a time of study in the home with members of your church family or with other brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll talk in a moment about what that looks like. But that's what it is. The regular use of scripture, song, and prayer by a family unit led by the family shepherd. Why is it important? If I were to ask you, what's one of the biggest problems in our church today? I imagine if we had time to go around the room, there would be a number of answers given in a crowd this size. Some of you might focus on how churchgoers relate to one another. You might say the problem is God's people don't get along. The problem is, is unity. Others might blame it on the moral state. Of, of those in the church and say the problem is hypocrisy. Some of you might be, be critical of, of the, the church's involvement or lack thereof in the community. The church needs to, to love the needy more and meet their physical needs, feeding the hungry, housing the homeless. Some of you might focus on what the church is not doing spiritually. The church needs to be more involved in evangelism, taking the gospel to the streets. And certainly I would not disagree with any of those statements. They are all important. They are all issues in the church that need to be addressed. But this morning, I am going to share with you a deeper-seated issue that needs to be addressed for these problems to change. Many of you have heard me say in the past, that right living is contingent upon right thinking. If one doesn't think rightly, they will not believe rightly. And if one does not believe rightly, they will not live rightly. To put it another way, the way you think influences what you believe, which influences what you say and do. So with that in mind, I would suggest to you that the biggest problem in our churches today is that the reason we're not living rightly is because we're not thinking rightly and the reason we're not thinking rightly is because we don't know our Bibles. The technical term for this is biblical illiteracy. It's a huge problem in the church today. It really is. Now here's the thing. Society has been here before in the Middle Ages from 450 to 1500, biblical illiteracy was at an all-time high. But those at that time had a better excuse than we do. They did not have access to their Bibles, and those who did, it was not in their language. Now, certain reformers tried to change that by translating the Bible in the heart language of the people into to, to English and, and German and other languages. Some were killed for it. By the time of William Tyndale, it was against the law in England to possess Wycliffe's Bible in English that was translated from the Latin into English. It was a crime that was punishable by death. Tyndale was put to death for his Protestant beliefs and for translating the scriptures into English from the Greek New Testament. So they didn't have access to the Bible in their language. That's not our problem. Not only do we have the Bibles available to us in our language, but in our preferred translations. Most Americans have 
access to this book in their home. An article published by the Barna Group in 2013 reported this. Look at this. Nearly 9 out of 10, 88% of Americans actually own a Bible. And on average, American Bible owners have more than three Bibles in their home. And one quarter of Bible owners, 24% have six or more. And that's not including smartphone devices where you can just get it for free on your phone. Yet while the Bible is still... One of the best-selling books can be found in a large percentage of homes throughout the U.S. Studies show that it is not read like other bestsellers. And the reason we know this is because studies have shown troubling statistics when it comes to basic Bible knowledge. For example, George Guthrie in his book, Read the Bible for Life, Your Guide to Understanding and Living God's Word. It's in our bookstore. Great book. I recommend it. He says this. Look at this. More than 10% of Americans believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Only 50% can name one of the four Gospels, and less than half can name the first book of the Bible. Some of you hear that and you think, well, probably that, those are non-believers, right? Those are non-believers being polled. Surely the numbers on average are, are better for churchgoers. You would think that, but you would be wrong. In an article entitled, The Problem of Evangelical Biblical Illiteracy, David Nienzis writes this. He, he writes, when answering questions about the core beliefs of the Christian faith from Scripture, average churchgoers fared only slightly better than their non-evangelical counterparts. Why is that? Why is biblical illiteracy an issue even among those sitting under the preaching and teaching of the Word each week? Well, Ed Stetzer helps us with the answer. Some of you might already know it, but in an article in 2015, this is what he says. He reported only 45% of those who regularly attend church read the Bible more than once a week. Over 40% of people attending read the Bible occasionally Maybe once or twice a month, and almost one in five churchgoers say they never read their Bibles. So why is biblical illiteracy so, so high in the church? Average churchgoers are not reading their Bibles. And because they're not reading their Bibles, it should make sense that they're not talking about biblical things to their spouse and kids in the home and, and not encouraging them to read and study their Bibles and they're not living biblically in the world. Now, studies also show that believers in the church, they, they know this is a problem. They, they know they don't know the Word like they should. No, their kids don't know the Word like they should. The mistake they make is believing that the ministers in the church and the ministries of the church can effectively combat this problem on their own. A 2003 study by the Barna Group revealed that 85% of parents who have children under 13 years of age admitted that they are responsible for their child's spiritual development. That's good. But in the same project, it was reported most of the parents are willing to let their church or religious center provide all of the direct religious teaching and related religious experiences that their children receive. 
Now, you're not going to hear me say that the ministries of the church are not important. They are. Listen to my sermon last week. That's what we talked about. The ministries of this church are vital when? When they are working in connection with what is taking place in your private time with the Lord and in your time together in the home. You see, the issue with passing all of the responsibility for the discipleship of those in your household and your children off on the church is there's not enough adequate time in the one or two hours that we get together each week. Expecting that one or two hours of, of training each week would result in salvation and adequate growth in godliness is the same as a parent expecting a student to receive an adequate education having only spent time in the study of, of, of that subject or subjects one or two hours a week. It's not going to happen, is it? Here's the truth of the matter. A great deal of time has been wasted because home discipleship has been neglected. In a survey of church families in North America from 2007, conducted by the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Family Life Ministries on parental involvement in the discipleship of children, the study revealed the following. Look at this. More than half of parents said that their families never or rarely engaged in any sort of family devotional time Approximately 40% of parents never, rarely, or only occasionally discuss spiritual matters with their children. Nearly one-fourth of parents never or rarely prayed with their children. Another one-fourth only prayed with their children occasionally. According to Donald Whitney's book, Family Worship, another book we have in our bookstore, he says this, So little family worship regularly exist in Christian homes today that even in most of our best churches, most of our best men do not even pray with their wives and children, if they have them, much less lead them in 10 minutes or so of worship as a family. Terry Johnson in the family worship book shows how much is missed. Look at this. When home discipleship is neglected, if your children are in your home 18 years, you have 6,570 occasions figuring a six-day week for family worship. Jay Strother in Perspectives on Family Ministry explains God designed parents to serve as the primary spiritual catalyst in their children's lives. Research shows that even active students receive only 40 or so of biblical instruction each year from their churches. Parents, on the other hand, have more than 3,000 hours a year. Believers, husbands, wives, moms, dads, I want you to hear me say this. There is no amount of time that myself or any other staff person at this church can spend instructing those in your family in the Word that can match the time that God has given you in the home. Doesn't hold a candle. God has given you unlimited access to those in your household for a reason. You're there with them when they sit in your house and when they walk along the way and when they lie down and when they rise. And listen, your Word carries weight. They're looking to mom and dad for answers. 
God has given you this access and this influence to make disciples in your home. Nothing I can say can match that. How you spend those moments with those in your household will make all the difference in their lives spiritually. Another reason we are to be committed to home discipleship is because we are told to do it biblically and we have it modeled for us historically. Let's begin by examining what God has to say about discipleship in His Word. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Deuteronomy. If you can't get there quick, I've got it up on the screen. Familiar passage of Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verses 4 through 9, let me give a brief word of context. Moses is preparing the Israelites for their move into a land filled with pagan practices and polytheistic beliefs. And Moses tells them this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on their hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Moses knew that occupying a land filled with pagans and idolaters was dangerous because their false beliefs and practices might be appealing and attractive to God's people and might result in them being led astray. And it did that, right? In response, Moses reminds God's people that they are not to lose sight of the fact that there is one true and living God who delivered them from Egyptian bondage and led them out of Egypt and into the land of promise. Moses reminds them that this God is to be the object of all their love and devotion to help ensure that children of Israel would not drift from their relationship with God. Moses tells pastors to instruct the parents of, of uh, the kids of his parents. Is that what it says? No, parents to instruct their children in the truth of God's person and teaching and works. He tells them to do so continuously so that children for generations to come will know God and love Him and live for Him. Look at Psalm 78, 1-7. Tim read it earlier. I'm going to read it again. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in, in Jacob and appointed a new law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn and arise, and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. To ensure that God's people would not fall prey to the past sins of previous generations, the psalmist Asaph encourages his Jewish audience to remember past failures, remember the seriousness of sin, remember the consequences of sin, 
and remember the continued faithfulness of God. He calls for those in his audience to pass these teachings on and tell of the glorious deeds of the Lord. Tell them to your children, grandchildren, so that the next generation might know them. Children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. How many of you right now are thinking about the next generation? A lot of you parents are, right? You're thinking about your children, who they're going to marry, their spiritual lives, you're praying for them. How many of you are thinking about the generation after that? I know your grandparents are. How many of you are thinking about your children's children's children? There's a few great-grandparents in here doing that. You realize, now this is sobering here, there are decisions that you are making right now that will affect your family for generations to come. You realize that? Do you realize that God thinks in this way? He thinks generationally. How many times have you read scripture and you see something happen and you go, I know what's going to result from that. Lot and his daughters... I know what's coming down the line. God wants us to think in that way. And not when they're already here, but before. He he wants you equipping the next generation for the next and for the next and for the next if he delays his coming. He wants you to think in that way. The psalmist says, fathers, teach your children so that the next generation would know God and make him known. To those who are not even here yet. So that generations to come would set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Stephen Lawson said this in his commentary on the Psalms, on this Psalm, look at it. God commanded his people to teach their children who in turn would tell their children each generation should entrust God's word to the next generation. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? There's a lot more of this in the Old Testament, but... We don't have time to look at all those. Let's move on to the new. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, the Apostle Paul shows us that the calling placed upon parents to train their children for godliness is not just an Old Testament command for Jewish families. In the book of Ephesians, Paul addresses both Jews and Gentiles. In Ephesians 6, 4, he addresses parents, fathers in particular, saying they should not use their authority over their children in ways that produce resentment, but should instead instruct and admonish them with the teachings of Jesus. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That leads us right into our next point. Who does home discipleship? Who does home discipleship? Clearly moms and dads, right? Who else? Husbands and wives? Absolutely. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 5, 25 through 28. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Did you know that the ultimate aim in life is holiness? And that goes for the marriage relationship as well. I I, I tell this a lot to couples. The purpose of your relationship with one another is to pour into one another so that you become more like Christ. Some will say, well, I thought it was happiness. I thought that was the ultimate goal is, is to make each other happy. It is happy in God. Happy through growing in godliness together, pouring into one another, sharpening one another for the purpose of growing up in Christ together. Husbands, you are called to model the love of Christ, the love that he has for his church. You're to have that for your wife. It is a sacrificial, unconditional love of the will that mirrors Christ's love for his church. Even if you're not as spiritually mature as she is, God has given you responsibility and authority in the marriage relationship and has chosen to use you as an instrument to grow her in godliness. Now first, you need to be striving to grow personally in godliness and then lead her and your children in the study of the word together so that you, your wife, your kids all grow in godliness. Tertullian, early church father, lived toward the end of the second century. He wrote on the spiritual relationship between husband and wife in a work he entitled to his wife, a beautiful work. In his writing, he said this, look at this. Where the flesh is one, one is the spirit too. Together they pray. Together prostrate themselves. Together perform their fasts. Mutually teaching. Mutually exhorting. Mutually sustaining. Between the two echo psalms and hymns. Such things when Christ sees and hears, He joys. He says, husband and wife are brother and sister. Two fellow servants, one spirit and one flesh, they pray together, fast together, instruct, exhort, and support each other. If we're one flesh, we're to be doing this, husbands and wives, together. Martin Luther once said to us parents, look at this, I love this quote. If the kingdom of God is to come in power, we must begin with children and teach them from the cradle. In a sermon entitled On Family Religion, John Wesley calls for parents to instruct your children early, plainly, frequently, and patiently. Instruct them early. From the first hour that you perceive, reason begins to dawn. Truth may then begin to shine upon the mind far earlier. For those of you all who have lost a spouse, who no longer have kids in the home, for those of you all who are single, also for husbands and wives, Consider the words of Paul in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. In this passage, Paul calls for men and women in the church with years under their belt and life lessons learned in those years, those who are spiritual, those who are mature, to pour into those younger than them, not just age-wise, but but spiritually, those who are young in the faith, and teach them what is good and instruct them to be the man, woman, husband, wife, father, mother that Christ has called for them to be. In the New Testament, we have examples of people opening up their homes for Jesus to come in and and teach those in their home. In the early church, they met for study of the apostles' teachings and the breaking of bread in the home. Discipleship often took place around a table, around a meal with instruction 
and prayer. Many in the 16th century, the reformers, they opened up their homes for for widows and orphans and they used their home to disciple them. I'm glad the Lord blessed me with the loud voice. I can get louder if you need me to. They met daily around a meal. They designated that time to instruct those in their house with the Word. Believers, I want you to think about this. Think about what your homes would look like, what our church would look like, what our communities would look like if we would apply these principles in the home. Think about that for just a moment. Matthew Henry once said this. I love this quote. Look at this. So practical. Everyone must sweep before his own door, and then the street will be clean. If there were a church in every house, there would be such a church in our land as would make it a praise throughout the whole earth. We cannot better serve our country than by keeping up religion in our families. Amen. I'm challenging you today to consider making your home an extension of this church. That's the challenge I'm giving you today. A place where discipleship happens. Prayerfully consider this. I believe this is the calling placed on each and every one of us. You have questions on what it looks like? Come by. We'll talk to you. We'll share with you about what it looks like. We'll help you here. It's that important. None of us are off the hook when it comes to discipleship. The calling is placed on each and every one of us as believers. That is why we're here today. That is why we gather each week. This is the time you get equipped to be who God has called for you to be in the home. You are to come here to get established in truth and equipped for ministry to do what God has called you to do there. Okay? When do you do it? When do you do home discipleship? So we said earlier, the encouraging thing about recent studies among evangelicals is they do show that, that believers today see this as a responsibility. Parents see this as a responsibility. A study conducted by the Gein Center for Christian Family Ministry shows this. Look at this quote. Well over 90% of parents rejected the notion that professional ministers were the people primarily responsible for their children's spiritual development. When asked whether the parents ought to engage personally in a discipleship process with their children, not one parent disagreed, and most parents agreed. When asked then, why are they not discipling those in the home, most gave the same two answers. See if this sounds familiar. One is a lack of time, and two is a lack of training. Lack of time and training. They, they claim that they don't have the time and they feel ill-equipped for the task. I've spoken with many others who feel they need to be using their home for, for the purpose of, of ministry, for other brothers and sisters in Christ. But time is a factor and they feel ill-equipped to, to do it. We will end by focusing on these two things. One, we try our best at this church to equip 
you singles, husbands, wives, parents, children, to study the Word in your home. I made mention of this last week. Do me a favor real quick and pull out your study guide. If you got a bulletin, pull it out. You get these every week. This is a great start. If you're not doing it, this is a great start right here. You've heard the sermon. Hopefully you've taken notes. Your kids and youth, they come on... If they come on Sunday nights, they hear a sermon-based lesson. Most of our small groups revisit our sermons in their time together. They answer questions about the text, questions about how to, to apply the text, right? In our small groups, that's a great way. Joining a small group, that's a great way to be involved in, in, in home discipleship. Join a small group. We're committed to growing those ministries. You can go over the material in your home. You can invite people from the church over to study the material together over a meal. If you have someone who is not connected to our church, take one of our sermon-based lessons. We leave them at the table each and every week. It takes about five to ten minutes to read through, and it's a synopsis of our sermon for Sunday. This month has been a bit unique in that we've been talking about discipleship and our kids have been studying through Habakkuk, taking from a series I preached back in 2018. But you can go and listen to those. But next week, we'll all be in Colossians together. It's a great time to start. If you've never led a study with your family or with others, this is a great, easy place to start. As far as time, I think... If we're all honest, we would admit that it doesn't seem like there's enough hours in the day. We feel as if there's not enough time in our day. I know I'm guilty of this, but on the lack of time, there's two things to consider. First, consider we all have the same amount of hours in the day. Some commit to this practice, others do not. So to be honest, the issue is not time, it's a matter of importance. Also, we're not talking about a ton of time here, are we? Five to ten minutes over a meal? If you don't have time for that with your family, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, that's another issue that needs to be addressed. Another practical thing to consider with your busy schedules is the chances of you choosing a time when you're not usually available or a time with your family when you're not normally together is probably going to be less likely to stick. So, so consider a time when you are normally available, when you are together with your family. For me and the girls, it's usually at breakfast. Some of you are like, I can't do breakfast. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. Okay? We were already meeting together each day for breakfast, so it dawned on me, hey, we're here every morning staring at one another. Why don't we designate about five or ten minutes to study the Word together? We did that, and that's helped it stick for us, and, and we've remained consistent over the years. For, for others, morning is crazy, so maybe it's dinner, maybe it's before bed. For those of you inviting people over to, to study the Word each week, it makes sense to do it around a meal. You have to eat, right? Don't you have to eat each day? So study the Word around a meal, over lunch or dinner. Lastly, how do you do home discipleship? We've explained this a bit already. We provide you with great resources to use. 
In our study guides each week, we have a truth for the week, verse for the week for memorization, scripture reading, questions that deal with what's in the text, and questions on how to apply it. If you're meeting throughout the week, you can follow our Monday through Friday plan. If you're only meeting maybe a couple of times or, or even once a week, you can combine those lessons. I've done that. Trust me, it doesn't take very long. In his book, Family Worship, Donald Whitney says, it's as simple as this, read, pray, and sing. Write that down. Read, pray, and sing. You know, online each week, we provide you with access to the songs that our children and youth sing, and they're the same songs that we sing in here each and every week. Do you know that you can download a PDF of a sermon-based lesson each and every week that goes back several years? That, along with your sermon-based study guide, is all you need. You obviously don't have to do it all, but you can pick and choose and design it in the best way it works for you. Again, I want to help you with this. If you need help, I want you to come by. Meet with me. Let's talk about what this looks like for your family. Let's talk about what this looks like for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because it's that important. What takes place when you leave this place, like I said last week, makes all the difference in your lives spiritually. It'll benefit you. It'll benefit those around you, your church family, your community, and beyond. Consider Matthew Henry's words once again, and then we'll close. A church in the house will contribute very much to the prosperity of the church of God in the nation. Family religion, if that prevail, will put a face of religion upon the land. He said, here in the home, the Reformation must begin. I'm going to pray in a moment for revival in this community and in this land through, obviously, the ministry of our churches and through the ministry that takes place when you leave this place in the home. But before I do, I want to remind those of you here this morning, those of you listening online, before you can be discipled in the home, before you can be a disciple maker in your household, you must first be a disciple yourself. Christ came for this reason. He came to deliver us from darkness to light, to call us out of the darkness and lead us into His marvelous light. He came and He lived and He died and He rose again so that we through faith alone and Him alone could be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with God. Have you responded to God's gospel message today? Have you responded to God's Savior? the Lord Jesus Christ, by turning from your sin and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If not, that's your invitation today. It starts here. Bow the knee to Christ this morning. Turn from your sin. Give your life up and over to Him and be saved today. Let's pray together.